Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I am a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 33, Breeding Sites, recorded here on a bright and sunny morning. September 30th, 2022. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. And today's intro is from the song Sleepyhead. And our outro is Atom Age Vampire, Cat in the Brain. We have some corrections. In episode 28, Control, with guest Daniel Rose, I said the prehistoric planet was on Amazon Prime. And I misspoke. It's actually on Apple TV. I hope you didn't order the wrong thing as a result. My apologies. As well, we couldn't figure out the familial relationship between Dan and Trek from Dino Dan and Dino, Dan, Dino Dan's Trek Adventures. I can now confirm that Trek is Dan's little brother, not cousin or nephew. Apologies to anyone who is yelling in their car at a pre-recorded broadcast as if we were about to suddenly start listening to you. And finally, when we were told that in space no one can hear you scream, turns out that was based on the idea that noise does not travel in a vacuum. Well... NASA has changed their minds on that. NASA makes black hole sound waves from the center of the Perseus galaxy audible for the first time. There you go. Take that, nightmares. This is what you were hoping for, right? Alright, dinosaur news. A new titanosaur was introduced by the journal Amuginia, a bi-monthly journal from publishing original contributions on all aspects of paleontology, specifically focusing on Gondwana and the Southern Hemisphere, which is exactly where you'd find something about titanosaurs, isn't it? Titanosaurs are known to be some of the largest terrestrial animals to ever exist, but this one was Dinky, named Iberania parva. From the Santonian Campanian ages of the late Cretaceous, its remains were found in São José do Rio Preto formation in Brazil. The holotype LPP-PV-0200-0207, housed at the Laboratorio de Paleoecologia e Paleoignologia Departamento de Ecologia e Biologia Evolutia Universidade Federal de São Carlos, was excavated from the São José do Rio Preto formation. It's comprised of dorsal vertebrae, partial caudal vertebrae, a fragmentary radius and ulna, a partial metacarpal, and a nearly complete metacarpal. Its name means Little Iberia Wanderer, where Iberia is the name of the municipality from which it was discovered. So this thing was recovered through the phylogenetic analysis machine to be a derived saltasaurine, but is even unusual among that group too. Saltasaurs are armored sauropods, the ones with long necks, but as I said, armored, which is kind of different. Saltasaurines are known from the late Cretaceous of Patagonia and Argentina, and in this case though, they're, this is from Brazil. They're relatively small, ranging from 26 to 49 feet in length, except in this case, because this dinky thing is less than even that at 19 feet in length, and almost every species has bony studs and plates for defense, though in this specimen, none of those things were recovered. <laughs> this phylogenetic analysis suggests that we should consider that it therefore did have bony studs, scoots, and plates for defense too. And some saltosaurs are believed to have even had a tail club. Saltosaurs are reportedly believed to have carried their tails and necks almost parallel to the ground, and their small heads only have tiny peg-like teeth 
for stripping plants. Okay, this next news story isn't new, nor about dinosaurs, but it is specifically Jurassic Park related. Check this out. The Copia Journal, which is now known as the Journal of Ichthyology and Herpetology, published the article, Protogynous Sex Change in the Reed Frog Hyperoleus Viridiflavus, based on a series of studies performed in West Germany on West African frogs in 1989. This is the paper that Crichton has Dr. Alan Grant referred to. Though, while he was writing the novel, I guess the article wasn't yet published, so I guess Grant could only have said he'd learned about an intriguing West German study, which we're told on page 168, though not necessarily have read it yet. Well, this is the West German study on West African frogs. It says that sequential hermaphroditism has been documented for a few plants back in 1980 and is well known in invertebrate phyla, but in invertebrates, it has only been documented in fishes. There are two types of hermaphroditism, they say, protandry, which is when you're a male first, and protogyny, which is when you're a female first. It was speculated in advance of this paper that sex changes should be more common than the existing data indicated, and these researchers document the protogynous sex change in a laboratory-raised population of reed frog, Hyperoleus viridiflavus omatostictus. Now, this omatostictus subspecies occurs in East Africa between Mount Kilimanjaro and Mount Miro, and the superspecies viridiflavus is found in most of sub-Saharan Africa, and there are also more than 50 recognized species, subspecies. All these reed frogs are well adapted to harsh environmental fluctuations of the dry and wet seasons of the African savanna. They must survive for many weeks, in some areas even for several months, on low amounts of water and small energy reserves stored prior to estivation. And estivation being like hibernation, except not just for the winter. Estivation is when an animal goes dormant in any season, where the conditions are challenging to survive. So, the paper outlines where, in these horrid conditions, frogs begin to mate. They mate a lot. They got to. It's literally now or never, right? So the juveniles attain sexual maturity as quickly as within three months, but may take up to 10 months, depending on the climactic conditions. And it said that adults, due to their different morphological and behavioral adaptations compared to juveniles, quote, probably cannot survive in areas that experience a pronounced dry season and are probably annual in such areas. As well, in lab studies, the adults rapidly senesced after breeding ends. They rapidly deteriorate with age. Previous studies indicated that if, in fluctuating environments, post-breeding survival is low, selection acts to increase reproductive effort. And further studies confirmed, where adult mortality is high, it's correlated with high reproductive effort, showing risk sensitivity with large clutches and multiple clutches in one season. This basically boils down to the aphorism, make hay while the sun shines. Research shows that there are incredible pressures placed upon these frogs. Sexually mature juveniles have to breed and breed often because there are two inevitabilities if they don't act quickly. The annual, unsurvivable dry season arrives, and they'll become adults, after which breeding becomes the death knell. So that's the world in which these reed frogs live. But what about changing sex? A hormone treatment, either by injection or by addition to aquarium water of the tadpoles, has been used successfully to change sex in amphibians. In 1982, tadpoles of H. viridiflavus were treated with testosterone, leading to the complete masculinization of the gonads. Quote, other environmental extremes like extreme temperatures or egg hypertrophy also override the genetic sex-determining mechanisms thought to be prevalent in amphibians, according to the study in 1983. But the authors acknowledge, quote, no account has been published of functional sex reversal in amphibians under natural conditions, nor in the laboratory, without the kinds of experimental treatments discussed above. However, quote, many authors have reported cases of abnormality in the reproductive systems of amphibians found in the field in papers published in 1921, 1923, 1930, and 1944, accounting 
quote, simultaneous hermaphroditism in rana temporaria, where two frogs have well-developed ovaries and testicular nodules with fertile eggs and spermatozoa. This paper's authors note, quote, no behavioral or life history data indicating that this occurs in the field were provided. But the data was irrefutable. They found samples with, quote, typical male secondary sexual characteristics in amplexus, which is a fancy word for in the mating position, with a female, and later showed by dissection that this individual had two ovotestes, structured like normal testes with only a few degenerate ova included. All offspring from the breeding experiment were female, showing that this individual, although having and functioning as a male, was probably a genetic female. In other words, they in fact observed a, her a hermaphroditic frog successfully mating in the wild. The paper continues that protogynous hermaphroditism is favored under a series of conditions, one of which is when there is a differential male reproductive success that is age or size specific. This is facilitated by, quote, pronounced female choice for larger males, under which conditions a few males can monopolize all the matings and achieve a much higher reproductive success than any female could. Quote, a female changing into, into such a male age or size class could achieve a profound advantage. So let's tie this back to Jurassic Park. At Jurassic Park, we have a protogyne hermaphroditism, where a female has re reverted to becoming a male in an environment where there was, quote, pronounced female choice for males. In this case, an all-female population. This part holds up pretty good. What doesn't quite hold water is that these frogs have evolved to survive under extreme duress. Their environment rushes their sexual maturity, prioritizes their mating success, and the animals basically shrivel up and die after the mating season. In an all-female population under these mortal pressures, you can imagine how a species might adapt hermaphroditism as a means for the continuing survival of the species. An all-female population for a single season could mean the endemic devastation of their species. Grant's suggestion that, quote, some species of West African frog are known to spontaneously change sex from male to female in a single-sex environment kind of feels like an incredible oversimplification after reviewing this paper, eh? But it's fascinating all the same. All right, with the corrections and the news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. All right, returning this episode is our guest from episode 9, Skeleton. You'll be pleased to hear, again, the dulcet tones and the harmonized timber of Jamie Rayum. Thank you for coming back, Jamie. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Jamie is a songwriter, a ShapesGuitarLessons.com private instructor, host of TriviaSchmivia.com, the online trivia league, and private dancer at Dancer for Money. He'll do what you want him to do. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to be here. I was on a, a little bit of a Tina Turner kick. For some reason, it got in my head that uh, I said to myself, geez, I really like some of Tina's stuff, but I don't know if I've ever looked into what else she does. And so I thought, there's about five songs I know for sure, and maybe the rest of her catalog is awesome. And so I went to, to listen to it, and her top ten songs are, on Spotify, uh, basically her top three songs, and then the remastered version of those three songs. <laughs> and that rounds out the top ten. <laughs> oh, Spotify. But we had a rockin' good uh, dinner time with musical accompaniment with Proud Mary playing, and that was fun. Was that number one? Uh, I think it was number two. Uh, simply yeah, the best, was... and uh, Simply the Best is right there. Yeah, people yeah, want to hear that one or play that one anyhow one or the other yeah she, she had like private dancer we don't need another hero or something mm -hmm. um the uh proud mary goes like way back she's like she's an og when it comes to uh where rock and roll mm -hmm. you know originated from came from she was like right there in the early days of that sort of like incredible energetic bluster that started mm -hmm. the, the that kind of that uh, bluesy whole... era with the big hair for sure yeah. and the long legs yeah. that was uh she was yeah the, yeah, the showgirl right that's uh 
She was awesome. She, she was an incredible talent. I bet you she still is. I just haven't seen her in a while. We were looking through her on Instagram. She's got like pictures like with every celeb you could ever imagine. She's just been everywhere. Oh, yeah. She's the best. As the song says. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been asking people lately, what is their favorite dinosaur? Jamie, what's your favorite dinosaur? Mm, Ankylosaurus. The Ankylosaurus. That's a good choice. Did I say Ankylo or Ankylo? Either way, whatever the name is. Uh, I just find it to be like a fascinating uh, body type. Mm-hmm. Like, just to think about where the first one of those, what it looked like, where it came from, and how it ended up being the thing that we're familiar with in books or whatever, where it's just like loaded with armor, that huge like ass-kicking uh, ball at the tip of the, the tail and all that stuff, just being so low to the ground. And obviously it makes you think of a tortoise or a turtle or something like that, but just just evolution is so so incredible. Mm-hmm. And you're right, with all the spikes and all the all the bits, you think if you were that worried about being bitten that you grew all that armor that maybe you'd kind of like taper your tail down, like you wouldn't have something sticking out. But no, they uh, they obviously were smacking things with it to a degree yes. where they said, in the long run, let's have a club out there too and make it even worse. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's always like this bias for humans to believe that because something eats plants that it must be gentle at heart. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't want to hurt anything, but those things had to like put up with threats from all sides. So to see that it just evolved to have that it, essentially like a tank, yeah, a tank with legs, is just so fascinating. <laughs> or did look how long it take to to unravel is just something that I don't think people you know get a chance to think about enough to to ponder like how long things take to evolve like that. It's just so beyond our comprehension. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and to, to work as hard as you can to look unappetizing to eat was <laughs> pretty yeah. important. Yeah. Like, I'd rather not. <laughs> Just rather not eat that. <laughs> my, my bust my teeth. <laughs> so last time we got together, you prepped for the show by watching Jurassic Park. But this time you've gone and uh, we were going to talk some more about the music and film scores, original motion soundtracks, and you picked a couple really interesting ones um, that had great soundtracks, really great soundtracks, but didn't necessarily make really great movies. Um, (laughs) what uh, What did you prep with today? Okay, so last time we had such a good time talking about the sound design mm-hmm. feature of Jurassic Park, which I really enjoyed doing, and thanks again for having me on back then. Um, and I think we we touched base on a couple of like other, maybe we mentioned a couple other soundtracks and how fantastic some of the soundtracks were and how terrible, absolutely beautifully <laughs> terrible some of the movies were. Well, what I did today was I went over and listened to the Jurassic Park soundtrack this time because I was very unkind with what I said about how I didn't really think it fit stylistically with where the movie was based. And if we all go back to where it was based, like you said, and and we talked about it was based in Costa Rica. The first Jurassic Park was based in Costa Rica. I've been to Costa Rica and the music that John Williams of Star Wars fame, obviously, the music that he put together with Steven Spielberg's, you know, supervision or whatever for Jurassic Park was very much European based classic, classical music, Mm -hmm. okay? And I have nothing against that. I just want to put that out there. I think it's beautiful. I really do. I think Star Wars wouldn't be Star Wars without that musical contribution. And it's such a, such a voice 
for it speaks for the film so much without hearing a single line of dialogue but in Jurassic Park in 1993 was released the soundtrack was released in uh, May 25th 1993 there's 15 tracks there's no pop music there's no pop culture anything it is pure uh, classical pieces again so I went through and I listened to it and there are a couple spots where he does sound like he's getting a little bit jungle but it's still through the lens of European classical music mm -hmm. and to me what I did last time was just compare it to the absolutely devastating job that was done with Dune, the latest Dune, how that sound design and Hans Zimmer, what he did with the sound design was something that absolutely drew your imagination into a setting. And I think it is like one of the most perfect jobs I have ever heard with like the integration of the sound design flowing like seamlessly into the score that was put together. It's a very like modern uh, take on a uh, epic uh, Hollywood kind of score situation. It's just absolutely an 11 out of 10. Mm -hmm. So Jurassic Park, 15 tracks, John Williams, listen to it. No songs from pulp culture. Uh, it's very flowery for something that at times, as we discussed, for a movie that's actually quite violent mm -hmm. for something that was marketed to kids. Like it was, you know, it was scary and it was violent. Okay, cool. Well, what I did was uh, after looking at Jurassic Park, the soundtrack, I was like, you know, last hero sound, last action hero soundtrack from 1993. Same year. That would be a cool one to talk about. Uh, Godzilla from 1998, uh, that fantastic flop. That would be a cool one to talk about. And Lost Highway, uh, David Lynch's film from 1997. That would be a cool one to talk about. Now, why would they be cool to talk about? Okay, we're talking about the soundtracks this time. These are all really interesting examples of different ways to use a soundtrack. And for people that are younger that might be listening to this, there used to be soundtracks released with every film. There would be a CD or an album or a tape of some sort that would be songs from the movie, like essentially a curated mixtape. And these were from major labels. So they had big names coming together and uh, like, they were compilation records. Yeah. And if you if you ever made a compilation record for somebody you care about or a friend or whatever, or somebody's birthday, like, hey, here's like 20 songs that I like for you. We were in that era of being able to actually manipulate the media and create our own discs of audio because we had the technology to do that in the late 90s into the 2000s. It's something that means something to me. And it's something that when I was a kid, I really, really enjoyed hearing songs that you wouldn't hear necessarily from a band's proper release. They'd maybe release like a B-side, mm -hmm. which means there would be an A-side, which would be the single that you would hear on the radio, and then released with those singles, there'd usually be a B-side. Sometimes bands would release multiple tracks that weren't on the record. I'm a collector of that stuff. I really, really enjoy that stuff. You hear 
Typically, you hear a lot of interesting and risky things in B-side land mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from from bands that are like, oh, we didn't really dig this song, but it's a fan favorite. Or, you know, we just wrote the song, especially for the movie or something like that. I think that that is just so interesting. So Lost Highway, Last Action Hero and Godzilla are three of the most fantastic examples of soundtracks being put together from the 90s. All right. All right. Jurassic Park, not so much. So we're going to start with Jurassic Park. It's just the classical music from John Williams. So 15 tracks, that's all you're going to hear with it. That's perfectly fine. That's a pure score, okay? That is just the music that John Williams put together. There's nothing crazy about it. It's like mm-hmm. what you hear film is what you hear on the album. Godzilla, it is a fantastic soundtrack for a complete turd of a <laughs> I I was I, I'm not gonna lie I was kind of sad when I saw that it was over two hours long before oh, I no, started. Yeah, yeah. oh what <laughs> okay I'll watch it again and oh my god Matthew Broderick it's funny how he was so uh, he commanded the show he was a great lead in Ferris Bueller but he comes with like such a, a subtlety to him right like there's this uh water off a duck's back to him where when he goes to drive another like that that role is so niche <laughs> and and it's hard to stick him as a lead in others because it just doesn't translate quite the same which is crazy because he's got like broadway presence he does and how that doesn't translate onto the the film is i don't know what factors would go into making him stand out better whether it's in wardrobe or what but uh it's it's amazing how he was he's so profound in ferris bueller and uh and that just hasn't recreated itself iconic yeah 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 he's his character is described as a low profile scientist (laughs) Mm -hmm. all right that sounds exciting it was just (laughs) such a bad film this is what i would consider a companion record so this soundtrack was okay there was no music from the soundtrack in the film the only thing that you hear from the film is come with me which is puff daddy yeah over led zeppelin's cashmere uh-huh. uh in the 90s jimmy page from led zeppelin and robert plant from led zeppelin got together without the bass player the drummer died in 1980 so it was just the three of them left and they never really did much aside from i think they played with um uh what's that guy from genesis phil collins uh, peter gabriel phil collins okay. he played drums in genesis and then stopped playing drums but at like a live aid something or other gig in Philadelphia, I believe it was, they got together and played some Zeppelin songs with Collins on the drums. Jimmy Page has been very unkind over the years in describing their lack of preparation for that show. So uh, Robert and Jimmy are on tour in the mid nineties and they're playing revamped, rearranged versions of uh, Zeppelin tunes. And they ended up recording a new record of new material, just the two of them. And Jimmy Page's idea was like, well, we got to keep this gravy train going. So clearly Led Zeppelin should have something to do with this new phenomenon called hip hop in the 90s. This is one of the worst combinations and like disrespectful treatments of such a masterpiece. Okay, so 1975, they released Physical Graffiti and Cashmere's on it. 
Cashmere is one of the greatest, most epic rock songs in the history of classic rock. And P. Diddy is like, it's just terrible. It's a terrible combination. This album, though, the soundtrack peaked at number two. So this sold millions of copies. And here's the reason why. Excellent. Can you read the, the track listing? I got uh, Heroes by the Wallflowers. Right there. Yeah. Uh, it's a song that was popular. Mm -hmm. But it's not, not a great version of that song. The David Bowie version I've come to love a lot more. Okay, mm -hmm. so next. Next we got Deeper Underground by Jamiroquai. Awesome, awesome Jamiroquai song. Yeah. Uh, no Shelter, Rage Against the Machine. Jamiroquai and Rage Against the Machine side by side on a record. <laughs> you know, what a beautiful thing to be exposed to if you're not into Jamiroquai and you're a Rage fan yeah. or you're a Jamiroquai fan and you discover this Rage song. This is a fantastic Rage Against the Machine song. Mm -hmm. They didn't record very much in the 90s. They only released three records of original material and then they had like uh, an extra record of like B-sides and covers and stuff like that, I believe. But that is... That song stands out on any of the Rage records. It would be a yeah. great song. So it was like a, a really great contribution to this uh, compilation. We have uh, Air by Ben Folds 5, which is a, a contrast to, to Rage and Jamiroquai, that's for sure. Yeah, a fantastic tune by them as well. Uh, Running Knees by Days of the New. If you remember Days of the New appearing once upon a time for a brief while. <laughs> Yep. Um, that guy had a whole bunch of like mental issues and had trouble tuning his guitar in front of people on stage and all that stuff. But that song, that is a great Days in the News song. Like, again, just another solid track that maybe you wouldn't find on, on the records all put together like this. Just uh, really well curated so far. Mm -hmm. Next, we have Macy Day Parade by Michael Penn. Which I'm not too familiar Never heard anything else by this guy, yeah. but enjoyed this song. Walk the Sky by Fuel. Uh, Fuel was around for like a blink of an eye. They had a that, good album, uh, though. They, they have uh, one that I had to buy twice because uh, this stinking thing keeps getting lost on me. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I it's got a time. decent song from them. I got, I got time for Fuel. Uh, A320 by the Foo Fighters. You know, I've been a Foo Fighters fan since the first record, but I don't really like anything they've done since the second record like it's just it's not my thing but mm. i really really love this track and it's weird because it's a track with strings on it mm. which is something that i don't think we had heard before uh because this is around the era of their second record if i'm not mistaken so this is still pretty fresh for the foo fighters i know and it's like just a refreshing yeah. uh really cool song in their catalog the color was it color in the shade was, um, yeah, I think I was 97 because I saw them at Edgefest. Right. I would have been there too. They were awesome. And there was a lot of different stuff on there. I think Foo Fighters are still looking to find their voice. And so they had yep. a, a lot of different sounds in terms of like how fast they were going, how soft something was going to be, what is Foo Fighters going to be all about. And they had some giant hits off that album. And they just, it looks like they were just making music and having fun. And that's uh, even more so than when the, that, that first album was kind of more in one genre. But it really... was Dave. It was, he played everything except for a solo on Weenie Beanie. Okay. 
I mean, literally played the drums, played the bass, played the guitars, sang, did everything. Ah, that's my favorite Foo record. Yeah, it's a good. The one. second one has Everlong on it, and yeah. that's when he actually put the band together for the first time. But strangely enough, ended up throwing away ninety nine percent of the drummer's work mm. and re recording himself. So he wanted a band, but the band could not keep up with him. So he removed the drummer, and that's when Taylor Hawkins was scooped from Alanis Morissette. And he became the drummer for the Foo Fighters. Obviously, Taylor passed away earlier yeah. this year. Rest in power. Um, you know, that's that's where the Foo Fighters actually come from. The, the Foo Fighters that people know now come from this era where the yeah. band was actually coming together for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I think it must be a result that uh, it's one thing to like write a song and to do all the parts. And then another thing to like have something maybe develop out of jamming that uh in the second album you get a lot of different influences and it uh and a lot of different feelings for stuff and some big big hits and i think that that must have been the creativity coming together and meshing well uh and they've obviously been a band with longevity so yep. <laughs> they found the right place next year we got uh brain stew the remix by green day <laughs> so this always puzzled me why you'd release a song that's exactly the same as the song that's on a record that's released already but the only change is that the remix part, it has Godzilla shrieks <laughs> over it yeah. in part of the song. It's like... It's pretty cringy, yeah. Why? It's like you're just taking up space. Get something else. But I mean, Green Day was was popular as, as popular can be around that time too, coming off of the Dookie mm -hmm. record, playing Woodstock, and they had an incredible 90s, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. That next album was Insomniac, and it couldn't have done as well as Dookie, but... It did not. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think American Idiot—they had to wait till then to really pop back. I don't. They had a um, was it a double album? It was a long one, anyhow. They had, like, I think they released a triple record called Uno Dos Tres or something like that. And there's oh, really? like a big story behind that as a huge middle finger to the record company because of some internal issue with one of their members being refused for uh, treatment for cancer through the coverage that they had through their deal or something like that. Anyways, crazy, crazy, mm -hmm. crazy business to be a part of and, you know, all well, that. If Green Day stands for nothing, it's for justice. And I think... Uh... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we have an untitled track by Silverchair. Another big, uh, big moment for, for music in the 90s was Silverchair showing up. <laughs> I love that song. Yeah. That's one of my favorite Silverchair songs. I saw them on the Freak Show tour in 1996 or 1997 in Detroit. They were okay. really, really good live. Um, and then this, I don't know if this is on any of their records. Uh, it's not on the records from around that era that I have. And it was uh, another just like, oh, this is something that maybe you wouldn't hear on the record. So it's like a perfect fit for a soundtrack then we've got, do you remember Fuzzbubble? Fuzz Bubble? I've got this album. I don't remember this song out there by Fuzzbubble. Oh, yeah, I remember this song, but I'd never heard anything from this band ever again mm -hmm. past that point. But, yeah, like a really just a, an upbeat, rocking, kick-ass kind of like punkish, popish tune. Undercover by Joey Deluxe. Uh, kind of a, a weird one, but like still just, this is a good tune and mm -hmm. I don't think I ever would have heard of Joey Deluxe had it not been for the soundtrack. So, you know, a great promotional tour, uh, tool for records, uh, mm -hmm. for songwriters back in the day. Uh, they're not really, soundtracks really aren't a thing necessarily anymore, it feels like. But. It seems like I remember, um, like on the, 
the last Batman soundtrack that uh, seems, um, I think the Offspring had tracks on there, or um, the Offspring got uh, one of the tracks on. Do you remember, what was it called, The Faculty? There was a 90s movie called The Faculty, and it seems like bands were always eager to, to get their a, a hit onto one of these uh, soundtracks so they could get heard um, maybe by a new market. And, and I think, um, I remember, uh, was it Filter? I think Filter oh, had something Filter on the X. Ex- oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Filter was a big they, soundtrack. Band. They did yeah. One is the Loneliest Number on the X-File yeah. soundtrack. Yeah. And I remember one day sitting on the loo, and I had both versions of that song stuck in my head, and I couldn't reconcile them. I couldn't figure out why did I remember it being one way, but hearing a guy screaming at the top of his lungs at the second, and I couldn't yeah. figure out what it was. Um, and I think Foo Fighters did... Walking after you on I don't know. There was yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. the '90s had a good good mix. The marketing that went into to sending out these soundtracks, like they did the research, they found some cool stuff. They did. Uh, the last two tracks here are it looks like the the composition that uh, David Arnold put together for the opening titles, and uh, and another moment in the movie, looking for clues. Yeah. yeah. So overall, like how many tracks was that? Like fifteen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so 13 of those tracks, you know, if you take away the, the shitty Puff Daddy Led Zeppelin remix or whatever, that's a pretty solid collection of songs, you know? You know what's really bizarre is you look at the rest of those songs and does Puff Daddy sound like the same demographic as Silverchair Foo Fighters and the rest of them? No, but that was the whole point of the 90s to yeah. have the crossover appeal, right? I mean, that's why Jimmy Page wanted to get paid. He wanted to get somebody very, very popular to amplify something that he was you mm-hmm. know, proud of and wanted to get paid for again. And it reminds me, do you remember yeah. Faith Evans did something almost right away afterwards, which was uh, taking the police's every breath you take yep. and they created that I'll be missing you. <laughs> and I'll like... be missing <laughs> you. So like there's a very small cross section of, of a Venn diagram where I know both the original and the hip hop version. Yep. <laughs> Those are the two of them. I think that's the only two that go in there. It's a really cool exercise to kind of go through and try to identify samples and songs, especially oh, yeah. in like early Beastie Boys stuff yes. when like that was the Wild West. Nobody had that like sussed out yet. Like how are we gonna get everybody paid that are, you know, contributing to this like collage of music and everything i mean vanilla ice with the controversy of like mm-hmm. is he ripping off queen for under pressure and he's like well in interviews like well we do this just a little bit different and it's true it is it's not the same thing it's not necessarily a sample but is it infringing upon a copyright you know he made a fortune off that song and good on him you know bc boys made fortunes taking a whole bunch of stuff and taping it together with Rick Rubin in the early days. You know, get in there, move fast and break things is that annoying <laughs> tech bro mantra. Uh, and the same could be said for the uh, genesis of hip hop. For sure. And I got uh, one example from the 90s. Another one that pops out was uh, they didn't just sample old tracks or, or past tracks that were like influential in the, uh, you know, coming up of rock. They also went into movies to get quotes and things like that. And so I remember Fun Loving Criminals sampled a little too much out of Pulp Fiction. <laughs> or was it Reservoir Dog? I forget what it was, but... Yeah, they probably, made, probably Reservoir, I think, yeah. They, uh, they made Scooby uh, Snacks and they, they, uh, <laughs> they used too much of it. And I think they got sued pretty good for it. And that's another good song. Yeah. So 
the companion record that is that's the second type of soundtrack we will say at this point so we got pure score and we got companion record so mm-hmm. companion record does not have anything featured in the film off the record it was just released on the momentum of the movie and in this case turned out to be a very successful financial endeavor for everybody involved the next one last action hero soundtrack oh my god watched it for the first time last night uh-huh. Well, and I have to say, from everything I've heard about it over the decades, decades since it came out, <laughs> ridiculous, I didn't think it was that bad. Right. It get, I think it was because the lead kid was like a little dopey. But like other than that, yeah. it was it, the, 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 the lighting, the action sets, the, I mean, Arnold wasn't a slouch. It was funny. It was a satire yeah. on film. It was a satire yeah, yeah. on the ridiculous things that action heroes do and how that doesn't translate to real life. I think the villain was spooky. Was it Tom Noonan? I don't know the name of the guy, but yes, you are correct. The villain, the villain was very spooky. I yes. should look it up. He he might have been the guy that was in like Manhunter, and he was Frankenstein in Monster Squad, and uh, he was a villain in RoboCop Two, I think. Was it Tom Noonan? Oh, okay. Oh yeah, that's him. Yeah, that guy is creepy. Period. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree about the kid. The kid I could have done without him being cast. I don't know if he ever ended up doing anything again. I doubt it because I mean, Jesus, that was he was a bit much. His mom, I would have enjoyed seeing a little bit more of her character developed. <laughs> she just seemed constantly surprised throughout the film. You're not here again. You're still not here. It was like, oh my god. So, June 13th, 1993, so around the same era as Jurassic Park, same summer, I thought the movie looked fantastic. This is an example of the interwoven with film soundtrack, because immediately, as soon as you're into this film, and I've got it right here, uh, (laughs) you got uh, What the Hell Have I from Alice in Chains, that's in that first, like, combat scene or whatever, I'm like, oh, okay, so this... All right, so I can get behind this now. And there's certain songs on the soundtrack like Big Gun by ACDC, Angry Again by Megadeth, Real World by Queensryche, Poison My Eyes by Anthrax, uh, Cock the Hammer by Cypress Hill, Fishbone Swim. Uh, All of those were in the film. And then the ones that I didn't uh, mention, uh, Duff Leopard's Two Steps Behind and Dream On by Aerosmith Live. And then the Tesla song, Last Action Hero, all of those were in the credits. So everything off of this was used. Mm-hmm. And then the stuff that's in the song sounds like it was Michael Kamen with Buckethead. Do you know who Buckethead is? Is he a guitarist for Guns N' Roses? He was at one point in time. Okay. Very nice job. Very <laughs> nice. That's very cool. So in that weird, like, uh, terrible haircut era, of Guns N' Roses were Slash and the original guys weren't in the band. The touring band that Axel debuted with had Buckethead in the band. And okay. Buckethead is a guitar player who is like ridiculously prolific and he wears a bucket on his head. Is it a KFC bucket? It might be a KFC bucket. I, I'm not sure. I saw a Guns N' Roses tribute band called Guns and Effin' Roses twice. And they rock. Yeah. And the guy, so they get in the costume. One guy's dressed like Slash, and one guy's dressed like um, Buckethead. That's the only way I would have known that. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. Now, even though I'm really, really happy that Guns N' Roses got together with Slash again, because that's kind of the thing, uh, that era was just so, so bizarre. Anyways, Buckethead is, like, super, super prolific. Michael Kamen is, like, 
uh, and the Los Angeles Rock and Roll Ensemble. I like he Michael came in as like a, a string uh, conductor composer. Um, this was like executed ten out of ten. The it, when they used songs from the soundtrack, it didn't sound like they didn't fit because it totally made sense because of the style of the movie. Mm-hmm. It totally made sense to have big and uh, ballsy rock songs in the background while shit was going on because there was so much crazy stuff that was going on yeah. in the movie. So I thought that it was really, really well executed. Uh, this is one of the greatest soundtracks that has ever been put together <laughs> for movies. Easily, hands down. Like, the material that's on this, not one, but two Alice in Chains unreleased songs from an era where they had essentially stopped touring because wow. of uh, Lane Staley's drug addiction. And they were, they were like a number one selling band. They like Jar of Flies was a debuted number one on on uh, the charts. ACDC's Big Gun. That's a really unique kind of ACDC song. It doesn't sound like any other ACDC song that I've ever heard. Some, maybe not the best song, but it's it's a unique song. A good Megadeth song, an interesting, beautiful Queensrÿche song, a Def Leppard song that was recorded in the lead singer's living room. <laughs> Uh, an Anthrax song, and Anthrax has ties to hip-hop really early on with, like, getting into that crossover appeal. It, it's not necessarily a hip-hop song, but it sounds like there's a DJ in the beginning of it, so the Anthrax song is pretty kick-ass. Aerosmith is just a live version of Dream On, which is over at... In 1993, would have been, like, 20 years old. Uh, a Little Better by Alice in Chains, another really great B-side. Uh, Cypress Hill... You know, once again, we got some hip hop infused into a majority rock and roll kind of soundtrack because that is where we are headed throughout the 90s. Cock the Hammer is a great Cypress Hill song. Fish Bones, Swim, that's like a group of black guys playing heavy metal. That's pretty cool. And it's a great song. And then Tesla's Terrible. And Last Action Hero soundtrack sounds like it was written for this possibly song. Yes. (laughs) So this has got 12 tunes on it, and of the 12, 10 of them are like total, total kick-ass tunes. That's awesome. So another really well done, really well curated soundtrack from like a major motion picture, and it again, it is way better than the movie. Yeah. I didn't think the movie was terrible, but the soundtrack is like way, way more important than what that film was. So no offense to anybody that loves the film or, or whatever, but that soundtrack for somebody that grew up in the '90s that was playing guitar in his bedroom, yeah, that was that was a soundtrack to check out. Now we go the other way, and this is a very interesting thing. I didn't know what you would think about adding this, but so we got Lost Highway, that super neo noir, uh, bizarro film from David Lynch. This was released in 1997. Soundtrack came out January 15th, 1997. Um, Trent Reznor was the producer of this soundtrack. Okay. He had total creative control over this soundtrack. And what is really, really unique is that this soundtrack is like an extension to the film. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you press play at the beginning of the film, and you start the soundtrack at the beginning of the film along with the, the actual film, this soundtrack syncs up it in its entirety 
one time through with the film, scene by scene. That is bizarre. That's unique. <laughs> what's what's unique is like maybe why I know that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I got into this kind of thing um, when I was in Windsor where I was trying to sync up a lot of albums to films because it's all based on the dark side of the Oz. So Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd and The Wizard of Oz, this legendary creative coincidence that happens if you start at the third roar of the lion or whatever it is, Dark Side of the Moon syncs up to Wizard of Oz. And it's just got these strange artistic coincidences that when you're watching, it's just, it's a blast. Not everybody gets this. My wife, when we tried to watch this together, was like, what am I looking for? <laughs> and I was like, oh no, you don't, you don't like this stuff, do you? <laughs> she just doesn't care about that stuff. I find that stuff fascinating. So for many years, I would have friends over, we would get comfortable and we just put stuff on and like, see if it works. And a lot of Radiohead stuff works with certain things, I think. Kid A is supposed to work with Nosferatu. Um, but the Lost Highway soundtrack is actually, if you turn the, the audio off of the film, it syncs up. It's designed that way. And wow. Trent Reznor is a complete genius for this. Why? Why is Trent Reznor a complete genius? There are 23 different pieces of music on this soundtrack. And we have artists from David Bowie, to Nine Inch Nails, to Angelo Badalamenti, which is David Lynch's go-to guy for soundtracky stuff from like Twin Peaks and, and Mulholland Drive and stuff like that. We have Barry Adamson, uh, Lou Reed, um, Marilyn Manson, Antonio Carlos Jobin with Insensitas, uh, more Marilyn Manson, more Angelo Badalamenti, little pieces of, of these like very soundtracky pieces of of music. Mm -hmm. Then we got Ramstein, Ramstein, okay. Yes, and uh, Trent Reznor does a couple solo little things too, and and it ends on the same song that it starts with with David Bowie, but just like a different different cut or edit of the song. So twenty three songs, I think it's like seventy three minutes long or something like that. Part for part throughout the the movie, it syncs up. That's amazing. And I mean, when, you're, when you're dealing with entire pieces of other people's work and you're stitching them together so seamlessly like that, a lot of love and attention to detail was put into the curation of this. And just because of the songs that are on this, personally, I think that this is just top five of, of soundtracks that have been released. It is like so smartly put together and it is, it's abrasive and really beautiful side by side, which is something very difficult to like curate the flow of when things are so different. You know, I think we were talking about that earlier with Godzilla, like Rage Against the Machine and Bet Bolts 5 being side by side or with Jamiroquai as well. Yeah. That's something you're not going to see unless it's like a festival and that's what... <laughs> Word. These were kind of curated personal home festivals for you to check out. And in this case, it just kind of has that lore of the sink lore, which is probably super niche for people. But if you've never listened to um, Dark Side of the Moon with Wizard of Oz, 
do yourself a favor one Saturday night and just give that a shot. It's so much fun. Cool. It is like, it's so cool to see those coincidences happen. This is purposefully done and it is like genius level curation. That's really neat. I will, I'll have to look into that for sure. I love it. Well, I'll show you. So you've got really cool soundtracks. I'll show you what I got here. I, I dug through what my records are. I've got Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me soundtrack, um, which is a bunch of bands remixing um, old tunes, sort of. Is the Madonna tune on that? Beautiful Strangers here, yeah. Then the Who That's does... my favorite Madonna song. I play that one. I like it. I got the yeah. album. <laughs> uh, but American Woman by Lenny Kravitz. R.E.M. does uh, Dragon the Line. Like, it's kind of like bands uh, redoing, I guess, 70s uh, stuff for the theme of the movie. Which was okay. But far from super cool, I got Soprano soundtrack. With, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, obviously, Woke Up This Morning by Three. Uh, the rest of it is, like, not what you'd think. It's uh, a lot of, like, classic uh, Frank Sinatra. It doesn't really stand up as a... It doesn't all sound like A3 anyhow, which is fine. But I was a little surprised with that. Uh, Wait, A3, is that the one, Go and Get Your Gun, that that song or whatever? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, I'm not really familiar with Sopranos too much, but that, that theme song always, like, caught mm-hmm. my... Oh, it's super catchy and like i bought the album i'd never seen the sopranos when i got it i've uh here you go we're getting better ren and stimpy show soundtrack (laughs) what is on that uh it's a lot of jazz like uh original (laughs) original jazz obviously a happy happy joy joy and i got it because i really wanted the the log theme it's log log, it's such a wonderful toy i couldn't live without that so i got it (laughs) Uh, they also have the Royal Canadian Kilted Yaxman, which is, um, that was a good one too. Uh, but a lot of jazz. I've got, nobody will be surprised, the UHF soundtrack for my Weird Al. There it is. Which has a bunch of sketches and then a couple original songs. And one of my biggest favorite, the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. If you've ever spent, uh, eight or nine minutes listening to one song and it wasn't this, uh, you've spent those eight or nine minutes listening to the wrong song. And, uh, (laughs) and then here's a good one. Uh, see, there was a song by a band called Confidential called It Really Don't Matter. Do you remember this? Nope. On the Romeo Must Die soundtrack. <laughs> oh, that's got an Aaliyah song on it, right? She's got Sorry about again. five Sorry songs again. on it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's yeah. got a bunch of stuff. Anyhow, really like that one tune. Uh, the rest of the album, I don't know why I got it. You know, you know those back in those days, you just... You heard a song and that's what you did. You didn't. You couldn't get it anywhere else, really. It was the only way to get it. Yeah. Unless you found a single, which is something that I dove in to crates for, looking for, mm-hmm. just in search of like the stuff that nobody else has. It's like amazing the, how the market is better for consumers now than ever, and it's like worse for artists than ever. It's amazing how that is, eh? I I don't even know what to think about it. Artists are just willing to like do anything for free it seems like none of these streaming situations are advantageous for anybody that's actually a creator you're just at the mercy of people devaluing what you do back when we're talking about like when when these soundtracks came out i mean people were paid a bunch of money to have things put on soundtracks like there was there was budgets to do things and you could do interesting expressive things and now it's just you know i love youtube and i use youtube all the time but you got you got people just putting videos up of of compilations and 
I don't know. It's just the, everything seems just so saturated. There's just so much more music now than there was in the nineties. And there was like a, a gatekeeping mechanism to let people into the industry and, and not let other people into the industry. And it just, you had to be willing to give up a lot to get into that club. And there was a payoff potentially. Mm-hmm. Now there doesn't really seem to be much of a payoff and people are giving up more than ever. It, it's a very sad state of affairs for, for artists who are trying to be original artists. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I feel very bad for anybody that's in their twenties that are trying to navigate this system now. I think one advantage that the 90s had was that you had something in your hand. Mm-hmm. If you went to a store, you would actually come out with something in your hand that you could like analyze and kind of try to decode or try to find secrets from or or even if you just wanted to follow what producer that they were working with or who is that mysterious voice on track four that you recognize, but it's not listed. People did all kinds of like uncredited work before. Mm-hmm. On, on recordings and I don't know that's just the mystery of that is something that I've always really really enjoyed and like I said you have something in your hand that you can kind of stare at for mm-hmm. a while well plus the lyric sheet and uh yeah. and the cover art and yeah. all that stuff sometimes you get a lot of cool stuff in there yeah I remember uh, Stone Temple Pilots released their second record purple on my birthday or very very close to my birthday June 1994 and I walked to the store the day of had a big smile on my face the whole time <laughs> got the record, stared at the record, flipped the record over, looked at the back of it while I'm listening to the record. The record was fantastic. The CD was cool. The inside liner notes were like just pages of handwritten lyrics and studio photographs and stuff. I really loved that. And I just don't think that you get the same vibe from a website. No. And you don't or, cozy up with a, with a screen the same way either. Yeah. Or a, a YouTube channel. Like, I love my YouTube channel. It's an archive for everything that I've done. Really love it. But, you know, people aren't sitting at home staring at a screen of a cover. Mm-hmm. Like, they're just not. So that's why I tried to put so much effort into the extras and and the liner notes and everything when I was releasing records. Because, you know, people really enjoyed that. And like you said, you know, the lyrics... The lyrics are really important to some people to make that connection. And uh, yeah, you just, you had it and you collected it and you cherished it. Mm-hmm. Maybe you did it. I don't know. But like, you know, I cherished, I still have my CD collection. I don't, I don't really <laughs> listen to it, but I have a lot of memories and good times in those plastic cases. But uh, just having that thing that, that takes you back to like a moment in, in time yeah, and for you, sure. You focus on something for a while, or or try to discover something that's secret. Like I said, with uh, the sinking thing. Yeah, that's really cool. How, how cool is that? You know, like to to try to like get media to to have an outside of a release kind of connection. I I just think that is that's really creative things that are good for people to hear about. All right, I've got some trivia for you. You want to hear some trivia? Oh, boy. It's multiple choice, so it doesn't have to be too tricky. Just like university. (laughs) All right. Uh, They're all based on things that happen in Jurassic Park. 
You're all set. Not the book, though. Cause... Oh, oh. <laughs> all right. What is Ellie Sattler's full name? Is it A, Eloise, B, Eleanor, C, Ellen, or D, Elizabeth? Four choices. I'm going to go with Elo- Eloise. It is Ellen. C, Ellen. Uh... But it, nobody tells you that. You have to figure that out. You have to read the second book. It's hidden in that one. Damn. All right, what does Mr. DNA say the geneticists use to complete the DNA fragments? Is it A, animals like frogs, B, amphibians, C, frogs, or D, placental mammals? What was B? Amphibians. What was the second frogs option? <laughs> frogs. <laughs> These animals like frogs, frogs, amphibians, and placental mammals. It was frogs. Yeah, just frogs, you're right. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> All right. There are toxic plants around the park. Where does Ellie say they are from? Are they from Chile, from Kenya, the Dominican Republic, or the Cretaceous? Kenya. They're from the Cretaceous. <laughs> it was a trick question because uh, those are places and not times. But the Cretaceous period, as she says, she finds them and they goes, what is this doing here? That implies somehow that they cloned extinct plants too. You got, you got, yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, I screwed that up. Okay. It doesn't make any sense. All right. How fast does Hammond clock the T-Rex at? 45 clicks per hour, 32 miles per hour, cheetah speed, or it can make the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs? Uh, <laughs> the one that says miles. Yes, 32 miles an hour. Good answer. <laughs> you tried to trick me again, you son of a bitch. <laughs> All right. When Malcolm explains chaos theory to Sattler, and she signals that it went over her head, Malcolm says, A, that went over your head? B, moving too quick for you? C, I did a flyby? Or D, that's the essence of chaos. That's the essence of chaos. He says, I don't think he understood what this motion meant. He says, I did a flyby. I think he improvised that line. It doesn't make any sense. He didn't understand what she was saying. That went over my head, and he called it a flyby. (laughs) And that always troubled me with that one. All right, what was the diagnosis with the triceratops? Was it a species of veriformin? Was it meliotoxicity? Was it West Indian lilac bushes, or are we never told? Yeah, it was some sort of plant that he was eating, the lilac bushes. Yeah. So veriformin and West Indian lilac, I think, are the same thing. And uh, we're never told what the solution is, but they it is diagnosed as having meliotoxicity. Okay, so I didn't get that one. That's a, That was too tricky. Okay, after arguing with Hammond, when Sattler tries the ice cream, she says, It's melting? It's vanilla? It's good, or you never had control. That's the illusion. Oh, man, I'm getting slaughtered. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> she just says it's good. It's good. It's good. She shrugs it off. She says it's good. Um, Hammond says they spared no expense a lot. Which of these times did he not say they spared no expense? Was it setting up a biological preserve? The ride's coming online in the next 12 months. The electric land cruisers. The voice of Richard Kiley, the ice cream, or none of the above? The ice cream. No, he said they spared no expense. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe he said that like seven times in that movie. That's unbelievable. Yeah. All right, this is a really tricky one. How many velociraptors are in the film? Eight? Five? Velociraptors? Is that yeah. what you said? Yeah. Okay. Three or four, unless they can figure out how to open doors. Three. Yeah, there's only three. I've, all my life, thought that there was way more until I, I forget exactly why I went and looked at it, but I was like, oh, there's only three. 
That's oh, Godzilla, by the way. Yeah. Speaking of raptors. Oh, my God. At the end of that film when all the eggs hatch. It's just so stupid. So, so, so stupid. And it was um, all Jurassic Park influence. Yeah. And they look exactly like the raptors. Do they? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, at the end of the movie, they're even acting like the Raptors. It's, like, immediately after watching um, Jurassic Park to prep for the first podcast, mm-hmm. I was immediately taken back to that film in the kitchen scene when they're, uh, when all the little Godzillas are, are sprouting out. Now, I'll ask you a little trivia. All right. So, in Godzilla, what famous sports complex does the nesting of the eggs occur? Yeah, it's a Madison Square Garden. Nailed it. Nice job. Thank you. Uh, I only had one more question for you. In the closing shot, what is flying alongside the helicopters? Is it condors, seagulls, pteranodons, or pelicans? Hmm. They didn't have flying dinosaurs in that film. I don't recall. Oh, man. Pelicans. Yeah, pelicans. Yes! All right. I think I was probably like, you know, 43%. No, 10 right? out of 10. You nailed it. You you participated in every question. <laughs> uh, in Lost Highway, mm-hmm. what famous African-American comedian made his final film appearance? Um, Richard Pryor? You nailed it. Okay. <laughs> That's a big guess. Well but I think your question was uh, had too many clues in it. <laughs> Possibly. I thought that was quite well, Robert Blake, that was his last film appearance as well as like the devil or whatever his character was. Right. And then he went on to murder his wife. That'll take you out of the biz. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a funny down. thing how that works. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for, for coming back. It's been a lot of fun. I, going through some of these old tunes and thinking about... Uh, Getting those old albums and stuff like that was a ton of fun. Yeah, it was. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This is awesome. I really enjoy the the end of the podcast when you do the very specific uh, conversation about the book. It's been very enlightening. Oh, you like that I, part? Yeah. Yeah. I really liked it on our episode a lot, too. It was, uh, yeah. It's nice, nice to hear you speaking so eloquently about something that you care about mm-hmm. it's, it's a very deep book is what you're revealing to people that haven't read the book like a, this this is a classic for a reason mm-hmm. there's a ton of stuff in there uh yeah i just had a guest saying that you know i can see you doing one episode on a book but i can't imagine doing an entire podcast about one book and you know what yeah as i'm getting a little further into it it's like what haven't we already talked about here <laughs> but, but uh yeah, I think each chapter offers a little something fascinating, really interesting stuff. And um, I think that's what rereads are all about, going back and looking more closely at things after you've had a first impression. And uh, and looking at things that normally stick out. I think that those, when something sticks out, like, why is this there? It encourages you to look and say, well, why is it there? Answer the question as best as you can. And then you start uh, really thinking about it and maybe in that first read through it doesn't hold any weight but the second time when you when you've answered the question or or come up with a theory the third time you read it it means a whole lot more and it really yeah. and uh and it, it changes the book for you which is 
really, really cool because then you can see it and maybe catch a deeper meaning as you go through, which is fascinating. There's some mostly things that surround Dennis Nedry's character. There's a lot of extra bits and pieces that Crichton puts in on him, more so than almost any other character. For some reason, Dennis Nedry gets all of the special attention. Hammond gets quite a bit. Our heroes don't really. They're kind of just surviving the park. But um, yeah, there's lots of really interesting little bits, and uh, we're getting to them as we get into the gates. Right now, we're at the, a point in the book where... Uh, they're discovering animals are uh, reproducing on the island, and the power goes out. <laughs> so uh, they're in the hornet's nest. It's a pretty exciting time. That's cool. I'm glad you're liking it. Yeah, I'm glad you're doing it. Well, thanks, bud. All right, incredible. Thank you to to the passionate Jamie Rayum for returning. Thanks so much, friend. Uh, it's great having you back, and always great catching up. Uh, the text this week is Breeding Sites, spanning from pages 167 to 177. In a synopsis, the tour and the land cruisers are surprised to spot velociraptors on the supply ship, heading to the mainland, but they can't radio control to warn them because a major tropical storm is hitting, causing interference with the radio. Meanwhile, in control, Nedry has enacted a scheme to turn off the park security measures so he can steal embryos for Lewis Dodson and Biosyn. Characters, Dr. Alan Grant, he, quote, leans in the doors of the Jeep on page 167, staring at the screen on the dashboard. And I presume this is Dr. Harding's Jeep and not the Toyota Land Cruisers, which means that Harding, too, has a screen on his dashboard, which is pretty cool, just like the Land Cruisers. Grant believes there are fewer bigger animals versus little animals breeding because the raptors and compies are loose on the island, likely eating the bigger animals' eggs as well as their newly hatched offspring. Thus, keeping the larger fauna's infant population low. Grant says the raptors are nocturnal and asks if anyone has been watching the park at night. He also believes that these animals are feeding on small rodents and perhaps mice and rats. Jeez, this guy seems to have an answer for everything. But hey, the animals are all female. They can't possibly be breeding. You got an explanation for that, Dr. Know-it-all? Well, apparently, Grant, quote, recently learned of an intriguing West German study that he suspected held the answer on page 168. He inquires that the dinosaur DNA includes amphibian, and specifically frog DNA, and Grant believes it's amphibian DNA that holds the answer to the breeding conundrum. The data presented to the consultants, the quantity of dinosaurs in the park, is insufficient to determine whether animals have escaped Jurassic Park, and so Grant, at this moment, plots the exercise to investigate each individual nest, inspect them, and count the remaining egg fragments on page 168. From that data, they can count how many animals were originally hatched and begin to assess whether any are missing. He believes also that the computer data can help them identify where the nests are located. But when Lex begins to whine, the singular character who we're told likes kids, Dr. Grant, hears her appeal to eat and agrees they should head back to find dinner on page 169 at the visitor center. Returning in the Land Cruisers, Grant asks Malcolm how he feels about being correct that the Jurassic Park failed to control the animals on 170. While discussing fractal curves with Malcolm, Grant says he doesn't understand, he yawns, and we again are, instead of hearing about his intellectual thoughts, are given his sense of smell. These allusions to his comfort as an outdoorsman return, and he senses the sulfur in the air. Grant scans the ship with the binoculars and assures Malcolm that kids have great vision, with visual acuity that we forgot we ever had. Then he spots the velociraptors on the ship headed for the mainland. The radios in both land cruisers have failed, and Grant takes charge now. He has two missions, locate and investigate each nesting site on the island, and inform the control room that there are raptors on the A and B. He wonders how long until the boat reaches the mainland. And Grant doesn't like that they can't reach the control room now that the radios are down. Nor Harding. And their land cruisers stop again. 
Dr. Henry Wu in this chapter is unsure about the dinosaurs breeding at all, let alone there being breeding sites around the island on 167, we're told. Wu is interested in finding these nests and finding out why there are so few big animals, but he doesn't believe that 50 new animals can be supported on, quote, a couple of nests of eggs. When challenged by Grant about mice and rats on the island, Wu concedes, yeah, that's true, that there was a rat problem, but in time it passed, the problem faded away. On 168, Wu can't recall specifically if he used frog DNA, but believes it's possible, and he'll have to go check his work. John Arnold, uh, that the animals are mating, nesting, and breeding, as well as the raptors and the compies feeding on the eggs and offspring of, is problematic for Arnold, because he says none of that behavior has been observed on page 167. When questioned about whether anyone watches the park at night, he lets a long silence answer for him. No, nobody does. John reports to Muldoon that the Land Cruisers are up and running again on page 173, reassuring Muldoon that he needn't enter the park and retrieve uh, the visitors. He's not sure why the radios are down or why the Land Cruisers stopped for a moment there. Arnold picks up one of their phones and finds that it too is filled with static. Nedry says he's using the lines to send data to the mainland and that the internal lines should still work, but they don't. When Hammond pokes fun at Nedry, Arnold admits, yeah, but he knows what he's doing. When the lights go out, Arnold is just as in the dark as the park is on 174. The outage is strange. Everything in the building is fine, but everything outside, the lights, TV cameras, everything in the park are out. The Land Cruisers have stopped somewhere around the Tyrannosaur paddock. The phones are still jammed, so they can't ma call maintenance to get the power back on. And once the system collapses thanks to Nedry's programming, Arnold starts to realize it's all screwed up. He realizes they had, quote, real trouble soon enough. Nedry has turned all the security systems off. The whole building is opened up. None of the doors will lock anymore. But not just that. The perimeter fences are off, too. He and Muldoon realize at the same time, with the perimeter fences out, the animals can get out now, too. Dr. Ian Malcolm, he wonders why Grant believes the frog DNA holds the answers to the breeding question. Upon hearing Grant's plan to investigate each of the nests and estimate how many animals have been born, he challenges it, saying you won't know if the missing animals are killed or dead from natural causes or whether they've just left the island. Uh, and Malcolm agrees to ride back in the land cruisers with the kids, though no explanation is offered as to why. He and Grant have an important private conversation planned on the return ride to the visitor center, so there's no Timmies allowed in their car. Riding back in the land cruiser, Malcolm is oddly subdued on page 170, and rather than feeling vindicated, feels a bit of dread. I suspect we're at a very dangerous point, he says. It's his intuition telling him that something strange is bound to happen here on the island, according to his chaos theory. Simply put, the failures in the system controls quickly escalate into unplanned or unf unforeseen causalities, which may have dire consequences. When Lex and Tim say they see an animal on the ship in the fading twilight, Malcolm can't believe kids could see anything in this darkness, but when Grant identifies the animals on the ship as raptors, Malcolm is cool about it, saying, there's nothing to worry about, just radio the control room and they'll, sh they'll radio the ship. Problem solved. But the radios are out for some reason. Malcolm realizes they are the only ones who know that the raptors are on the ship, and it troubles him that they can't raise anybody on the radio on 174. And let it be known here officially that it's on the record. Ian Malcolm knows that there are raptors on the A&B. Donald Gennaro. Gennaro is impatient with the breeding concerns and redirects the line of inquiry on whether animals have escaped the island or not on 168. Recall, this is Gennaro's mission, his duty, and his task that he set upon his consultants. Gennaro opts to remain with Dr. Sattler and Harding and the Stegosaur, presumably because he's attracted to Dr. Sattler and is interested in spending more time with her, as suggested by Grant Malcolm and Crichton's narrative. Lex Murphy. Lex begins to get impatient with the computer talk and whines that she's hungry, and she feels left out when Timmy gets to use the night vision goggles. She and Tim spot raptors on the NB, and when the Land Cruiser stop a second time, Lex becomes worried. 
Dr. Ellie Sadler. Sadler opts to remain with the Stego so she can help Dr. Harding take photos of the vesicles in its mouth. Doctors Malcolm and Grant both seem to agree that Dr. Sadler's shorts, a.k.a. her attractive legs, are the reason, quote, our lawyer is staying behind. According to Grant, her legs have sung this siren song before. Tim Murphy. Tim wants to ride with Doctors Malcolm and Grant on the ride to the visitor center, but they deny him again. Regis coaxes Tim into the second Land Cruiser with the night vision goggles, which Tim thinks are, quote, neat. He and Lex spot raptors on the NB. Ed Regis. Regis senses Tim's disappointment in not being allowed to ride with Grant and Malcolm, and so offers Tim a chance to use the night vision goggles. Regis is rather dreading the ride back to the visitor center with the whining, quarreling kids, but he's taking this one for the team, so Grant and Malcolm can, can, can have a peaceful ride for that private conversation. And he mentions it to Grant, sort of, meaning he feels he's owed a little recognition. And we empathize with Regis a little, too, in this moment. He says he's ready for dinner and a nice banana daiquiri, showing he's always the good host. And in his final moments here, he pounds the side of the Land Cruiser and says, see you back at camp, emulating a safari guide on an adventure, which is ironic because they're in electric vehicles on a guided path. When the kids spot the raptors on the NB, Regis hops out of the lead Land Cruiser, which is stopped, and comes to tell Malcolm and Grant about it, rather than using the intercom as he had earlier. When Grant says he's identified the animals on the ship as raptors, Regis is worried. When Regis reaches for the radio to tell the control room to warn the ship, they only hear static on the radio. He tries the radio in the first Land Cruiser and is not functioning as well. Regis tells Grant the ship takes 18 hours to reach the mainland, or will be there by 11 a.m. tomorrow, by his watch. He's working hard to find someone on the radios. He sincerely doesn't want the animals reaching the mainland, especially the raptors. When the cars stop a second time and all the quartz lighting goes out, Regis says he's sure the lights will come back on in a minute. Robert Muldoon. After 7 p.m., quartz floodlights turn on around the island, turning the landscape into a glowing jewel stretching away to the south. And this is Muldoon's favorite moment of the day. Muldoon suspects that the tropical storm blowing in is causing the interference with the radios, causing static to prevent them from communicating. But the cars are due back in 20 minutes, so it's nothing to worry about. When the lights go out, Muldoon wonders if they lost power on 174. Once Nedry's plan is in place, Muldoon watches out the window, seeing people dodging the rain, but otherwise not realizing anything is going awry. The lights in the park are out, but those in the immediate area around the building are still on. The lights at the visitor lodge are still burning bright. As Arnold says, there's trouble. Muldoon turns from as Arnold says there's trouble, Muldoon turns from the window to investigate. Coincidentally, just as Nedry leaves with his jeep, and so doesn't notice him. Once security has been compromised, Muldoon opts to go notify the guards on 177. Muldoon heads out to retrieve everyone in the Land Cruisers with the gas-powered jeep that Nedry just stole, quote, just in case. He doesn't think the animals will touch the fences. They know they're electric, but he's concerned that the people will get out of the Land Cruisers and be stranded out there when the power returned and the cars may leave without them. John Hammond. Hammond wonders why the cars stopped on 173, and Hammond requests that someone call down to the dining room and make sure that dinner is ready when Arturo returns. He expects the kids will be hungry, and as Nedry leaves, Hammond pokes a jab at him. What a slob. Then as Nedry. Nedry interrupts Arnold when he picks up a phone line and says he's taken all the lines that communicate outside to do the bug fixes with his team back in Cambridge. He says the internal lines around the island should work, but all the lines are taken not just the outside lines. Nedry apologizes and says he'll clear some lines after the next data transfer in 15 minutes. Nedry then offers more to say than he's said through the whole novel so far. Looks like a long weekend for me. Guess I'll go get that Coke now. Then he grabs a shoulder bag and heads for the door, adding, don't touch my console, okay? Hammond doesn't like Nedry, but Arnold still has his back. 
Nedry, though, has jammed the phone lines, and they're interfering with their chance to send assistance to the Land Cruiser or turn the perimeter power back on. The security problems at Jurassic Park weren't because of bugs. Turns out Nedry programmed these security malfunctions. He programmed in a classic trap door, the book says, to the system, allowing him access to the system. This was worth it, after all. Jurassic Park demanded extensive modifications to the system late in the project, but hadn't been willing to pay for them, threatening lawsuits and blackmail to pressure Nedry to comply. So now Nedry uses the, quote, classic trap door to steal embryos for Dr. Lewis Dodson at Biosyn. Oh, snap! This is Dodson's inside man! And here's a neat trivia question. How many embryos does Nedry steal? You'd think 15, one for each species on the island, as per his instructions, right? Well, apparently not. We're told on page 176, he takes two of each, slipping them into the shaving cream can. That's 30 embryos. Shock and amaze your friends. Meanwhile, the control room is in chaos. Security codes are scrambled and phone lines are jammed. But he'll be back soon enough to restore control. Behind the wheel of the Jeep, his plan is to drive three minutes to the East Dock, then three minutes back to the control room. This should be a piece of cake. Dr. Lewis Dodson. Remember Lewis Dodson from way earlier, who had an inside man at Jurassic Park who was going to steal Biosyn all those embryos and catch the company up on five years in technological development through industrial espionage? Yeah, that Dodson. Well, he's back, and Nedry is recalling him, knowing he can get past Jurassic Park's security systems, get into any room, any system, anywhere in the park, because he programmed it that way, just in case. We have a security guard. Nedry nods to this guy on the ground floor of the visitor center as he heads back downstairs to the basement. Stegosaurus. It's presumed the vesicles in the stegosaurus' mouth will have healed by tomorrow. Procomsignathus. Based on the population data, there are two compy nests on the island. Uh, Velociraptors. And based on the population data, there are two raptor nests on the island. And the raptors are now said to be nocturnal, too. And two juvenile velociraptors, maybe more, are spotted on the A and B, playing and darting among the silhouetted stern structures. Othnelia. Based on the population data, there is only one Othi nest on the island. With Myasaura, that same data says there is only one Maya nest on the island. Hypsilophodons. Based on the population data, there is one Hypsi nest on the island. All right, let's get to our localities. Uh, the Land Cruisers. As the Land Cruisers depart the south fields, a red light blinks on the dashboard on page 170. In almost every sci-fi screenplay, a red light glowing out of electronic devices usually represents that they are achieving sentience and are about to start eradicating mankind from the face of the earth as artificial intelligences want to do. In this case, it seems it just represents power returning to the vehicles, meaning they can continue moving. I guess that light turned off when they exited the vehicles to inspect the stegosaur earlier, right? In the first Land Cruiser, this was initially ridden by Grant, Sattler, Malcolm, and Gennaro, and it has a portable walkie-talkie, a radio transmitter, and night vision goggles in the map pocket. When people return to the Land Cruisers, this vehicle is subsequently filled with Regis, Lex, and Timmy after the Stegosaur visit in the South Field. The second Land Cruiser first had Regis, Tim, and Lex, and Tim had a pair of binoculars in here. Apparently, Tim left those binoculars behind when he visited the Stegosaurus, and so they remain in the second vehicle, adeptly remembered by Crichton. And when our heroes hop back into the Land Cruisers, only Malcolm and Grant climb in the rear vehicle, and the binoculars are apparently still in the rear car. And Regis needs to return from the first Land Cruiser to the second to reacquire the binoculars to take a closer look at the AMB so they can confirm the kids' claim that they see a raptor on the ship. The South Fields. The South Fields are again said to smell of sulfur due to the volcanic activity in this region. And there are fumes of volcanic steam, and now they're running along a coastline overlooking the beach and the ocean. So that must be near the South Fields. Isla Nublar. After circling around the bottom of the South Fields, the road comes to a coastline overlooking a beach and the ocean. And after 7pm, quartz floodlights turn on around the island, turning the landscape into a glowing jewel stretching away to the south. Rolling north, after the quartz lights turn on, the jungle appears as bright 
as a bright green tunnel of leaves. Control, we again are told of the big windows overlooking the park that one can look through in the control room, overlooking the beach. Just north of the south fields, the road comes to a coastline overlooking a beach and the ocean. On page 170, volcanic steam flows through the sky and at this point misting rainbows in the bright quartz light after those turn on at 7 p.m. That sounds nice. Fertilization. The fertilization room's security card locks are disarmed with a perimeter power out on 175, thanks to Nedry's programming. This room is deserted. All the staff are at dinner. The freezer is the size of a small closet with shelves from floor to ceiling, containing reagents and liquids and plastic sacks. In there, there's a small nitrogen cold box with a heavy ceramic door. Inside that is a rack of small tubes that emerge in a cloud of white liquid nitrogen smoke. The embryos are in thin glass containers wrapped in silver foil, stoppered with polyline, which we described more in detail back in episode 23, The Tour, part 2. The visitor center. The fertilization room and the main lab are on the second floor, and Nedry exits through a hallway, and arriving on the ground floor, he too, like Muldoon earlier, sees a security guard before heading down the basement steps. So there's a pathway between the stairs to the labs and the stairs to the basement, which crosses a security guard's station or desk. East from the visitor center is the east dock, with access via a maintenance road that heads into the park on 176. The basement. In the basement, there are neat lines of electric land cruisers, but Nedry passes them and chooses the gas-powered jeep parked against the wall. In it, there is some odd gray tubing, the rocket launchers, on the passenger seat. And the ANB. The ANB is further described as a broad-beamed ship with a splash flange running its length. Illusions. We have Mandelbrot. Benoit Mandelbrot. <laughs> Fractals are a kind of geometry associated with Mandelbrot. We're told by Ian Malcolm. Wikipedia tells us Mandelbrot was a self-described fractalist who coined the term fractal and the theory of roughness and self-similarity in nature. Mandelbrot says that things typically considered rough to be a mess or otherwise chaotic, like the shapes of clouds or, or shorelines, they actually hold a, de a degree of order. This is similar to what Malcolm describes on Mandelbrot's behalf, that shapes and patterns recur over a scale of small to large. In Malcolm's interpretation, also events can recur, and this makes things unpredictable. Events can change suddenly and without warning, according to Malcolm's interpretation of fractal geometry. As Malcolm recaps, Mandelbrot did study cotton prices, and over many years maturing his concept of fractals and the study of financial markets, with the availability of high-frequency data in finance, he was able to use intra-daily tick data to, to apply fractal theory to market microstructure, which led to the comprehensive papers on scaling law in finance. The law shows that, quote, similar properties at different time scales, confirming Mandelbrot's insight of the fractal nature of market microstructure. So, as Malcolm suggests, this isn't just for shapes, nor for markets over time, but for events as well. Strange, unpredictable, and sudden occurrences follow a similar pattern, but may manifest in large or small forms. This concerns him, because as they are out on tour in Jurassic Park, strange, unpredictable, and sudden events are occurring. And he feels like the scale of these events may be growing, which could have serious consequences on human life, as per his report. A classic trapdoor. A trapdoor is apparently a common practice for programmers, though frowned upon by their clients, to leave these hidden instructions in the code, which, accessible by a means secretly known only to them, grant them the unlimited access to the system or source code. Kilroy was here. This is a reference to a graffiti left behind by soldiers in various wars who left behind a ziggy-looking doodle as if it were graffiti while on tour of duty. Reportedly, this little tag was found all over the place during World War II as soldiers would draw it where they were stationed, encamped, or had visited. Put these illusions together, we're left with the impression that these trapdoors are left behind by the brotherhood of programmers who leave them just like servicemen left Kilroy was here 
wherever they have worked. Do those illusions work for you? To me, it feels like Crichton got a few things confused. I've heard of programmers leaving little signatures or messages in the code, which usually are a way for them to positively identify their code if they believe someone has copied or stolen it, and therefore can protect their intellectual property. I could see that Kilroy was here illusion sort of being described like this, but it's not a strong illusion, if you ask me. Trapdoors, on the other hand, aren't necessarily an evil thing or a signature, but rather a skeleton key that permits coders and programmers to bypass regularly restricted areas of the system where only someone who really knows what they are doing should be messing around as a means to protect the system. If there's a real problem, they can access that area using the trapdoor that nobody else is using, knowing that nothing has been harmed at the fundamental level. Uh, you can kind of think, are you familiar with the Konami co code? It's the uh, B-A-B-A, -B -A, up, down, B-A, left, right, B-A, start. And that was supposed to be a code that, you know, when people were showcasing, Konami was showcasing one of their video games, they just crack in that uh, password and they would have, you know, be able to be invincible or whatever and, and jump to any part of the game they wanted. It was, this is the kind of skeleton key that they, they would program in so you could showcase what a video game would be like. And imagine all kinds of computer systems and games and everything else have a skeleton key that helps you <laughs> fix things or show things off as needed. And I feel like the illusions that Crichton has used here don't aptly describe what Nedry has done. He didn't leave the trapdoor as a signature, and he certain, certainly didn't leave it like a tag to show others that he was here, instilling hope and camaraderie among his brotherhood when they arrive, or conversely dread among his enemies. I mean, I personally rate these illusions as ineffective, and I think they're just confusing. Stylistic techniques. We have ellipses. Yes, that's true. Ellipses. And 168 says woo. Well, we just assumed ellipses adds Arnold. Okay, ellipses. On 171 says Grant, asking Malcolm to get to the point. No, nothing. On 172, you mean... On 177, probably nothing will happen, but you never know. On 177, but still, you never knew. On 177. In all these instances, the ellipses indicate that there is more being left unsaid, but instead of representing words that have been omitted, they're suggesting that others are invited to fill in the gaps and provide the words which are being left unsaid. And I think that's fine. Italics, I'm hungry, on 168 wines Lex, and the italics show that she's in fact whining to emphasize her point rather than just saying as a fact, I am hungry. <sighs> what a brat. It's the only way to look at things, says Malcolm, indicating his full support of Mandelbrot's idea that fractal theory is the only way to look at the unpredictability of life and events. Near the back, look near the back! These italics offer a sense of panic and importance. Tim is desperate for someone else to finally see these wild raptors he's been spotting. Exclamation! Exclamation is used to demonstrate injustice in this chapter as well as astonishment, and it starts off being used by Lex. No fair! No fair! You get to do everything, Timmy! On what 69, she whines, concerned that she won't be able to share in using the binoculars or night vision goggles or whatever. Hey! On 174, she adds, when the Land Cruisers stop, which immediately affects her need to return and get something to eat, Nedry, on 174, comes with a heaping of judgment on Hammond's behalf, looking to dole out some justice of his own, insisting that Nedry return the system to functioning order, but of course Nedry has skipped out. We can imagine Jerry Seinfeld doing the same thing to Wayne Knight. Newman. Nedry. <laughs> it's good. It was gone. On 177. The Jeep was gone. These final moments are for a concerned and perplexed Robert Muldoon, who is speechless that the jeep and armaments he just prepared moments ago are now gone. Rhetorical questions. What do you say, folks? A daiquiri sound good? On 169, showing that Regis is a tour guide, good leader, and a man of the people. Namely, 
he's being a good host. In this instance, he's not declaring that everybody get daiquiris like some dictator, but rather he's rousing support that they should all continue looking forward to having a good time when they return to the visitor center. But then they get mired down in confusion. Now what? I don't want to stop. Why do we stop? What the hell was happening? There's no obvious explanation for the land cruisers and systems to have stopped functioning, and everyone quickly finds themselves in disarray. The rhetorical devices uh, show that. M-dash. Unlike ordinary Euclidean geometry that everybody learns in school, M-dash. Squares and cubes and spheres, M-dash. Fractal geometry appears to describe real objects in the natural world. And, quote, partly it was common sense. If inept users locked up the system, M-dash, and then called you for help, M-dash, you always had a way to get in and repair the mess. In these examples, the M-dash serve as parentheses, providing a parallel thought to be taken concurrently with the same sentence in which the clause is contained. And then we have, quote, speck of rock seen under a microscope, M-dash, it will have the same basic fractal shape as the big mountain on 170. Or, without his help, it would take hours to untangle this mess, M-dash, but in just a few minutes, Nedry would be back in the control room setting things right on 176. In these examples, the M-dash takes the place of a colon to emphasize the conclusion of the sentence. Quote, it was lucky, he thought, that he had had the foresight to put the launcher in it. He could start right out and be out there in a M-dash. And finally, it's used here to serve as an interruption, cutting Muldoon off from his inner thoughts. Colon. The colon is used twice in this chapter to present an explanation. Arnold picked up one of his phones and heard hissing. Colon. Nedry's computers talking to each other. And partly it was common sense. Colon. If inept users locked up the system, you always had a way to get in and repair the mess. And it's also used, the colon is used to introduce a statement. And partly it was kind of a signature. Colon. Kilroy was here. Semicolon. It was so dark, it was almost a silhouette. Semicolon. As he watched, the ship's running lights came on, brilliant in the dark purple twilight. This is good. These two clauses are connected by a single sight, occurring over a common moment, so their connectivity is understandable and easy to follow. Nedry was annoyed by the Jurassic Park project. Semicolon. Late in the schedule, engine had demanded extensive modifications to the system, but hadn't been willing to pay for them. This is good, too. The two clauses are also related, and Nedry's annoyed, and we find out exactly why in the same sentence. Lawsuits were threatened, semicolon. Letters were written to Nedry's other clients, implying that he was unreliable. These connected clause-style sentences are useful in that they, they leave with the consequential and important element of the sentence, lawsuits were threatened, and explain the consequences afterwards, implying that he was unreliable. Constructed otherwise, we might bury the lead in the sentence, as the expression goes in the, news, the newspaper business. The room was deserted, semicolon, as he had anticipated. All the staff was at dinner. Again, cause and effect. One sentence beginning with this initial impression and then an explanation. All these semicolons look a little strange, used so casually, but they're all used well to keep the, the narrative moving smoothly, quickly, and presenting meaning uh, very effectively. We have capitalization. Contents viable, biological, maintained, minus 10 degrees Celsius, minimum 175. Uh, how else would you know you were looking at a sign if it weren't written in all capitals? Uh, literary techniques. We have some more foreshadowing with the weather. As well as pathetic fallacy returning to launch this chapter on 167, we're told, as the sky, quote, was growing darker, which both suggests that dark times are ahead and also makes the sky appear as if it is growing, and perhaps, too, that it's growing in menace. Uh, we have metaphors. After 7 p.m., quartz floodlights turn on around the island, turning the landscape into a glowing jewel stretching away to the south on 173. You can imagine the lights shining brightly and the quartz color looking like a precious stone. Quote, the road was plunged into darkness on 174, and we can imagine ourselves being plunged into a pool, perhaps being quickly overwhelmed and surrounded by a new environment. And in this case, it's a dark environment. 
Nedry's computers talking to each other. Uh, here they aren't necessarily talking, nor really communicating, but rather just transferring data, but it gives them some agency, makes it feel like they're active rather than just tools. Quote, he had built in a classic trap door. This might have worked a bit better as a back door, or a secret hidden entrance, or a skeleton key, or something like that, which grants you access. A trap door feels like you're feels like something you'd find when soliciting Mr. C. Montgomery Burns for a philanthropic purposes. Uh, in the end, Nedry had been forced to eat his overages on Jurassic Park and to make the changes that Hammond wanted on 175. Here, as discussed a bit during the Life and Times of Dennis Nedry with my terrific guest Adam Legan in episode 23, The Tour Part 3, Nedry, the overeater, is said that he's forced to eat his overages, and there's something gruesome about the metaphor that someone who's portrayed as gluttonous is punished metaphorically by being forced to eat. Similarly, real life isn't a series of interconnected events occurring one after another, like beads strung on a necklace. This is an effective simile. We can easily picture beads strung on a necklace and how they are sequential. And we're to understand, life is not like these beads. Dramatic irony. Life is a series of encounters in which one event may change those that follow in a wholly unpredictable, even devastating way. That's a deep truth about the structure of our universe. For some reason, we insist on behaving as if it were not true. At that moment, the cars jolted to a stop. 171. This is great because, unbeknownst to the speaker, his prophecy suddenly becomes reality in that moment. One event becomes followed by an unpredictable and perhaps devastating moment. Motifs. The illusion of control. This chapter picks up where Stegosaur left off. All the systems of control and assumptions in place to maintain control at Jurassic Park are showing themselves to be failures. And now the control room is unsure why the Land Cruisers stopped on their return. Just as Lex and Tim spot the Raptors on the ship, the Land Cruisers stop, and Regis can get out and chat with Grant for a while. Then they start up again, but the radios are down. Hammond wonders why the Land Cruisers stopped, and Arnold doesn't know. He guesses they turned off the radios and the cars themselves. Muldoon thinks the problems are being caused by the storm that's blowing in. But as it stands, they all still believe that at least their safety is under control, even if it's being proven that many of their own systems uh, of control have failed them. But they're all just guessing as what's going on. Events are no longer under their control. Chaos is shortly to ensue. Discussion. Movie adaptations. Here in the novel, the frog DNA study that Alan Grant refers to is a West German study about frogs that are West African. I looked to see if West German referred to a research company or something, but it seems to be just that it's from Western Germany. And to a bunch of millennials on the brink of being from Generation X, like me, who may not recall, Germany was split into a Western and Eastern bloc until reunification in 1989 when this book was being completed. So Jurassic Park exists in a world where the Berlin Wall still stands. And it's very interesting to consider, despite the EPA and the federal interference that Hammond was concerned with, there is noticeably no politics in this novel. There are agents acting on behalf of their nations, but nobody lobbying for liberalism or conservatism, fascism, though you might suggest that Hammond was dreaming of the laissez-faire French economics, as we discussed in episode 32, Control, with my guest Matt Bufton. A few differences between the film and the novel on the frog DNA stuff. In the novel, it's specifically referred to as amphibian DNA, and the phenomenon of gender transition is best documented among West African frogs, and is used in only some of the species, specifically those which are breeding. In the film, however, doc, uh, Mr. DNA tells us that all the DNA was completed using frog DNA. We use the complete DNA of a frog to fill in the holes and complete the code. Phew! And now we can make a baby dinosaur from the scene in the visitor center. Grant inquires that the dinosaur DNA includes amphibian rana and specifically dog, uh, frog DNA. Grant believes it's amphibian DNA that holds the answer to the breeding conundrum. 
the paper we read in the news section, this episode says that hermaphroditism isn't specific to West African frogs, but rather that it's even more common in fish, more common still in invertebrates, and has even been documented in some plants too. Nicknames. The dinosaurs are all given nicknames to compies, mayas, raptors, authies, and hipsies. Uh, are these to be read as just short-form versions, or, or is it something more? Sadler opts to remain with the Stego, we're told on 169. These nicknames were adapted into the movie Promotions and more. I thought these nicknames were dumb, and I always have. Trike for Triceratops really bothers me. They're absent of anything clever, which, if you've ever given someone a nickname, you always have to find kind of a fun inside story for them, right? You don't just chop the last eight letters off their name and stick with that. That's really dumb. I had an inkling to consider that nicknames were being used on female characters for the purposes of infantilization, but looking a bit more closely at it, that doesn't really hold up. Like, all the women have nicknames, Ellie, Lex, Tina, and Bobby. None of them go by their given names, Ellen, Alexis, Christina, and Roberta. But in no instance are these names used to minimize, belittle, or suggest that someone may not understand a subject. They aren't used in an infantilizing way. Although almost exclusively, none of them are called by their actual names. Only these nicknames. And Ellie's full name, Ellen, isn't even given to us in this novel. You have to wait until Crichton writes Jurassic Park The Lost World to get that interesting tidbit, or else you might have supposed that her name were Eleanor, like I did for ages and ages. But until I find some convincing indication that nicknames are being used on women for any derogatory purpose in the narrative, I'll refrain from pursuing the infantilization angle. That said, perhaps there's something in the psychoanalysis of this text where the author writes all his female characters this way. The other women are Ellen Bowman. She has the same name as Ellie Sattler and Amanda and Elizabeth Gennaro. Neither receive nicknames, though Mandy and Liz are perfectly common. All right, more on the dinosaurs. Grant believes, or has observed through his field work, that dinosaurs build their nests in secluded places and assumes the average clutch is 8 to 12 hatchlings, or 8 to 12 hatching eggs. That is a bit of a broad range in terms of estimating uh, how many dinosaurs have been hatched and then how many have survived and how many might have escaped the island. That range of 8 to 12 over, what did he say, 6 breeding sites? Uh, the figures, I don't know. His mission to count all these egg f shell fragments sounds flawed. <laughs> like, there's a, too many variables to, to make any sense of it. Cloning dinosaurs. Wu says, in this chapter, the incomplete DNA strands were repaired with DNA fragments from other species, including a variety of birds, sometimes reptiles, and possibly amphibian. And, of course, we find out later it will be amphibian. Plotting the book. In the novel's final act, Grant and Gennaro have what feels like a contrived confrontation over responsibility and their duties as consultants. And that quarrel appears to be rooted in this moment on page 168. Recall, this is Gennaro's mission, his duty, and his tasks that he set upon his consultants, whom he hand-selected and brought to this place, where he knows animals are getting off the island and too many construction workers are dying. The consultants are tasked with seeing if the park is safe and if dinosaurs have escaped the island. Grant says in this moment that the only way to know this is to investigate each individual nest, inspect them, and count the remaining egg fragments on 168. So this plot to count the eggs begins here, at this moment, and becomes an incomplete task for our adventurers late into the novel. One which apparently Grant is hell-bent on completing and will contemptuously attack Gennaro for upon the consideration that they do not complete this task. Perhaps it feels contrived because Crichton doesn't include any connective tissue between the, these two moments or these characters that keeps this moment alive in our reader's mind. So later in the novel, we're going to be asking ourselves, why the hell is Grant going down this rabbit hole to count velociraptor eggs after we've just seen how absolutely horrifying these animals are? 
Well, we can see that it was obviously Crichton's intention to make that a final act of this novel from, from this point. And it's visible right here and right now as we wrap up the third iteration. And knowing that Grant will have a heated confrontation with Gennaro later in the book, slamming him up against the wall to lecture him on, quote, shirking responsibility, perhaps we should take a note, too, that Grant is in this chapter right now feeling that Gennaro is creeping on Dr. Sattler, lured to stay behind and keep her company because of her shorts. And Grant might be jealous or find it unbecoming of a gentleman, I don't know. Maybe as a PhD supervisor, he feels like he should be protecting her. This might just be another straw on the camel's back as we load Grant up moving forward through this story. And after all this setup, isn't it time for the inciting incident to finally occur? Damn right it is. The storm strikes. The kids spot raptors on the boat headed for the mainland. The lowering clouds loom over the dark outline of the supply boat, and all our chess pieces are in place for a mad scramble over the next 200 pages as dinosaurs maneuver freely throughout Jurassic Park for the first time in tens of millions of years to put man in checkmate. Timeline. It's about sundown, we just said, around 5.45 p.m. in Costa Rica, and Lex is complaining about being hungry, also confirming that this is around dinner time, traditionally hosted at about 6 p.m. Edry just says they should be able to return from the south fields by the Stegosaurs to the secured visitor area in the north in about 20 minutes on 169. So it's taken all afternoon to dawdle through the park, peering into the paddocks, but they can travel the remainder of the journey in good time if they set their minds to it. Contrivances in Plot. We are told that the vesicles in the stegosaur's mouth will be healed by tomorrow by Dr. Sattler on 169, and that sounds nice. Her input has helped lead to a cure, putting a bow on her little story arc. But, like, we've been told that two of the stegosaurs have died from this illness. It's pretty serious. Beyond tranquilizing the animal, no mention of medication has been made. If anything, they've identified the source of the poisoning. I suppose that means they could remedy it, remedy it if, the, if the cure were available, but it feels like a strange contrivance for Sattler to declare the stegosaur well on its way to recovery. Thank goodness it is, in any case, because I love stegosaurs, but it just seems odd. Chaos Theory. We get some explanation for the fractal curves that accompany the iterations in the novel. Crichton's Ian Malcolm wants us to think of the world through a chaotic lens and describes it as best as he can thusly. Fractal geometry appears to describe real objects in the natural world. Mountains and clouds are fractal shapes, so fractals are probably related to reality somehow. Chaos theory teach, teaches us that straight linearity, which we have come to take for granted in everything from physics to fiction, simply does not exist. Linearity is an artificial way of viewing the world. Real life isn't a series of interconnected events occurring one after another like beads strung on a necklace. Life is a series of encounters in which one event may change those that follow in a wholly unpredictable, even devastating way. That's a deep truth about the structure of our universe. For some reason, we insist on behaving as if it were not true. Island layout. After circling around the bottom of the south fields, the road, become, the road comes to a coastline overlooking a beach and the ocean. So I believe they've traveled the entire west coast of the island, hit the bottom, and now are returning up the east side of the island. And apparently, from their high vantage, they overlook the eastern coastline and also a beach. And that's neat that there's a beach, and I think that this is the beach that will appear in our closing moments before the epilogue to this story. So there is a beach, and some of this island is in fact at sea level, which I hadn't been confident about earlier, but now uh, it is irrefutable. Uh, that the kids can see the Anby offshore departing the North Dock further supports that they're now presently on the east side of the island. In earlier readings, I felt like they may have been on the south point, in the south fields with the Stegosaur, on 154, and that the dock was on the north point because the north dock received so much attention in Nedry's instructions with Dodson on 71, and it'd be unbelievable to think that they could spot animals on the boat from eight miles apart 
as was described on page 77. And I'm wrong, of course. They're nearer each other than I had thought. And I think, recall, Timmy has binoculars, right? Remember when they popped up earlier out of nowhere so he could check out the Othies in the trees? Well, thank goodness they appeared at that point because they're sure handy now. Believe me, I know. This story, this, this sort of doesn't qualify as a believe me, I know candidate, uh, but it fits into the idea that Regis is either a liar or he's flat out wrong. In this case, I'm sure the lights will be back on in a minute, is a statement that becomes untrue. And also, I don't think he's going to live to ever see the lights turn on again. <laughs> Sucks to be Ed Regis. Spared no expense. The famous adage that Jurassic Park quote spared no expenses uttered by Regis, who we've cataloged as almost categorically incorrect in everything he says. The park spent on the luxury of recruiting Richard Kiley to be the voice of Jurassic Park's tour, but otherwise the park has been very chintzy, fully automated to min minimize staff and overhead expenses, set to operate with, with only 20 personnel. No good doc was installed because they didn't want to spend the money, and now we learn that they blackmailed Nedry to force him to eat his overages in the system design. A hell of a goddamn system, according to the lead engineer John Arnold, that Nedry doesn't seem like he's going to see a profit from installing. So let's be clear, they spared some expenses, and it's going to cost them everything. Building a mystery. We get some answers to a few questions that came up earlier in the novel. If the animals are breeding, why hasn't anyone at the park noticed ever? Well, apparently the velociraptors are nocturnal, so all the diurnal animals are mating, nesting, and breeding, but the eggs and offspring are unreported because they're being eaten by the compies and raptors, and you're not noticing the new raptors nor their predation because they are nocturnal, and nobody ever watches the park at night. You don't have to like that answer, but that's the answer we get. But the animals are all female, how can they be breeding? And here's a new mystery. And as has been observed in earlier episodes, the iterations each seem to present and solve a mystery, and we're entering into the fourth iteration with the subject now being investigated. In the third iteration, we're concluding our time in the third iteration, what can be said about it and how it performs structurally in the novel. The first iteration introduced a mysterious new lizard that's biting and killing children in the coastal villages of Costa Rica. The second iteration pursues the question, is this new lizard a dinosaur and how could that be? The third iteration shows us that dinosaurs are back, but questions whether it was a good idea. And in summary, this third act has taken all our characters and placed them out in the park. Security systems are all turned off. In the middle of a serious tropical storm, outside the Tyrannosaur paddock, the most fearsome predator in the history of the world. Allie, Gennaro, and Harding are separated from the group. Malcolm and Grant in one land cruiser. Regis, Lex, and Tim in another. The chessboard is set. All right, thank you to my special guest today, Jamie Rayum. Thank you, thank you, thank you for coming back, pal. A lot of fun. I want to sign off today thanking you, too, for joining me. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Parkcast is a part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the inventory, and the worst of them all, the King Street Gapers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.ca or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me, I'm on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast. Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also love that too. Until next time. I used to worry about what people would say, but then nobody said anything.